This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee on day 23 of the 60-day legislative session, where the Speaker of the Florida House has announced a major expansion of the Medicaid program for infant and maternal health. Today, the Florida House is making a meaningful commitment to address the disparities in health outcomes for our children and for their moms. Extending their period of insurance coverage will help significantly improve health outcomes statewide. 60% of maternal deaths here in the U.S. are actually preventable. Extending this coverage will save lives. The speaker says they're not really expanding Medicaid coverage. He says they're extending it. Florida's Department of Health reported more than 5,300 new cases of COVID-19 Tuesday, 41 additional fatalities. But the governor says it won't be long before the age limits are gone and any adult can get vaccinated. We're going to get to a point where this is just going to be available to everyone. I think that's going to happen relatively soon. Uh, I think the administration set a date by May 1st. They wanted it basically to be open to all adults. And I can tell you in Florida, that's going to happen way before May 1st. More complaints from local officials about bills moving through the legislature that preempt the authority of cities and counties. This session we've seen an avalanche of proposals designed to undercut local democracy, erase home rule, um, and they're really aggressively pushed by the biggest corporate interests in our state. Um, And it seems that some legislators um, have a really fierce loyalty towards these corporate interests rather than the people who they were elected to serve. Have to admit, that's a very polite way to say someone sold out. Republicans in the Florida House are supporting a bill to impose new limits on THC, the active ingredient in medical marijuana. Ben Pilar is not surprised. He says there are some lawmakers who will never accept the idea of marijuana as medicine. You know, if it's marijuana that gets people high in any way, shape or form, they don't like it. They never have. And and they've continued uh, to try to, you know, invalidate, uh, you know, our votes by by first by prohibiting smoking. Um, and now this. Pilar ran the campaign for the amendment legalizing medical marijuana. He's our guest today on the Sunrise Interview. We'll also have your calendar of events and the latest tales of Florida Man. But before we get into that, a word from the sponsor. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. This public health crisis has shown our one-size-fits-all education system does not meet the needs of every child. Senate Bill 48 rethinks education and provides needed flexibility for students and families, giving students the tools and resources they need to unleash their potential. You can make a difference and improve our education system by visiting fledreform.com to tell your lawmaker to support SB 48. Paid for by Americans Prosperity Florida. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Wednesday, March 24th. This is National Ag Day, National Cheese Steak Day, and National Chocolate-Covered Raisin Day. On this day in 1765, Britain passed the Quartering Act, requiring colonists to house British soldiers. That's why we have the Third Amendment of the Bill of Rights to restrict the quartering of soldiers in private homes without the owner's consent. In 1832, Mormon leader Joseph Smith was beaten, tarred, and feathered in Ohio. In 1958, Elvis joined the Army. And in 1986, Jimmy Connors was suspended for 10 weeks and fined 20,000 buckaroos for storming off the court during a tennis tournament in Boca Raton. Florida House Speaker Chris Sprouls announces a new plan to expand health care coverage under the Medicaid Infant and Maternal Health Program. Today, the Florida House is making a meaningful commitment to address the disparities in health outcomes for our children and for their moms. We believe that providing access to postnatal coverage for up to one year 
after the birth can significantly boost health outcomes for moms and their babies. And we know that healthy moms are better positioned to raise healthy and thriving children. We also know that this pandemic has affected nearly every aspect of our life over this past year, including maternal health care. And the new moms may be facing even tougher challenges than they've ever faced before during these isolating times. So today, as part of our Medicaid-conforming bill that will be noticed later on today, we are proposing a simple extension for the covered timeline for pregnant women already covered by Medicaid from two months to a full year after delivery. To accomplish this endeavor, my House colleagues and I are committing $200 million into that Medicaid-conforming bill to make this a reality. This extension will do a lot of good for those moms and for their babies, but we acknowledge that it won't solve every problem. We need physicians and medical experts to play their part in educating patients, and we need better career and education programs to drive Floridians to in-demand jobs where there's health care coverage. We're working on those things, too, in this House. But this is a step that we must take to help support an important and vulnerable population, our pregnant moms and their babies, during and after their pregnancy. Representative Colleen Burton of Lakeland chairs the Health and Human Services Committee in the House, and she says Florida has to do a better job supporting new moms. Florida is a leader in many areas when it comes to maternal care in the prenatal period. The post-delivery period is a particularly vulnerable time, and ongoing health care is essential to a new mother and baby's well-being. New mothers may be dealing with a host of medical issues, such as complications from childbirth, pain, depression, or anxiety, and they are bearing this while caring for an infant. The postpartum period is also when many cases of maternal mortality take place. Inadequate care can result in poor health outcomes for infants, which can in turn impact their development. And because about half of all births in Florida are already covered by Medicaid, extending their period of insurance coverage will help significantly improve health outcomes statewide. In these additional 10 months of coverage, we can provide moms with the ongoing care they need, things like regular checkups with OBGYN, mental health service, or even dental care. Members from all sides and all backgrounds in the Florida House are committed to the well-being of Florida's babies and mothers, and we want to see them thrive. GOP leaders are calling the shots on this expansion, but they were quick to give credit to a Democrat, Representative Camia Brown of Ocoee, for convincing them this needs to be done. For decades... New mothers have only received 60 days of postpartum Medicaid coverage, but the reality is that more than half of the maternal deaths occur after that time. By investing greater resources in the budget for this program, we are really providing life-saving support for new mothers in need. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention estimate that 60% of maternal deaths here in the U.S. are actually preventable. And to be perfectly clear, Extending this coverage will save lives. Uh, this problem impacts minority communities disproportionately. Disparities in maternal health equality results of mothers in color, mothers of color in Florida being three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white mothers. One bit of irony here is that Republicans who are philosophically opposed to expanding Medicaid coverage for low-income workers are championing the very same thing for new moms. But Speaker Sprouls claims it's really not the same. He says the difference is they are extending an existing program rather than expanding the number of people who are eligible. Okay, whatever works for you.
The DeSantis administration dissolves four emergency orders dealing with visitors at nursing homes. The state had initially barred nursing home visitors to try to prevent the spread of COVID-19, but later issued orders that loosened those restrictions. Division of Emergency Management Director Jared Moskowitz has now issued an order that rescinds the four previous orders he issued last year. The administration is now telling the nursing home industry to abide by recently issued federal guidelines that allow visitors to touch residents who've been vaccinated. Ron DeSantis heads to the Panhandle to open a new vaccination pod at Zion Hope Primitive Baptist Church in Pensacola. Anyone 50 and up qualifies under the latest executive order, and the governor says it won't be long before they open things up. We're going to get to a point where this is just going to be available to everyone. I think that's going to happen relatively soon. But, you know, they set a date. Uh, I think the administration set a date by May 1st. They wanted it basically to be open to all adults. And I can tell you that, tell you in Florida, that's going to happen way before May 1st. So, so stay tuned on that. In Florida, we're not mandating any vaccine for anybody. These are, though, good vaccines. I think you see the effects now, and I think you'll continue to see that in the weeks and months to come. And so, you know, they're safe, they're effective vaccines, and we want to make it available for people. At the same time, you know, there's not going to be a mandate here. And there's also not going to be any vaccine passport requirements. Uh, It's really unfair to impose that on people as a cost of being able to participate in society. So we're not going to let that happen in Florida. Uh, Again, available to all, required for none. And that's, I think, the right policy to have. The state reported more than 5,300 new cases of COVID Tuesday, but the governor says other indicators are plummeting thanks to the policy of prioritizing seniors, especially those in nursing homes and long-term care. Good news is, is if you look, seniors first, focus on getting the shots to seniors. Seven-day rolling average for cases among seniors is down 87% from January 7th to March 21st. The seven-day rolling average for hospitalizations COVID-related for senior citizens in Florida is down 81% or 85% from February 3rd to March 21st. Um, and it's down 92% for seniors since January 7th. Now, part of that was going into the nursing homes early, but part of that is doing the seniors first, 65 and plus. So we're really, um, we're really happy to have been one of the leading states in focusing on seniors first. We also have 40 other states still that rank higher than Florida in terms of per capita mortality for seniors. So 40 states have higher mortality. And again, that goes back to focusing on nursing homes at the beginning, doing testing of seniors uh, throughout the pandemic, and then obviously prioritizing them from vaccination, uh, which we think is good. The state also reported 41 new fatalities Tuesday. Our death toll has reached 33,449. The drive to put more limits on local government continues at the Capitol. It's called preemption, and Hallandale Beach City Commissioner Sabrina Havilana says she had no idea how many ways the legislature had tied the hands of city and county officials. So it's been very frustrating in trying to do my job and pass the things that residents elected me on when the state is really taking these powers away from us. And many of these issues uh, that arise with the origin of these preemption bills that really range from impacting our environment, procurement, public safety, budgets, building codes, and more is a basic lack of experience in local governments. This session, we've seen an avalanche of proposals designed to undercut local democracy, erase home rule, um, and they're really aggressively pushed by the biggest corporate interests in our state. Um, And it seems that some legislators um, have a really fierce loyalty towards these corporate interests rather than the people who they were elected to serve. 
They seem determined more than ever to put profits over public health, safety, um, and our local governments. Uh, these policies are disproportionately harming Black, Brown, working class Floridians. Just yesterday, for example, the Senate Select Committee on Pandemic Preparedness and Response decided they were done with their job and they adjourned for the last time. While there is still 100 million questions that aren't answered in this ongoing pandemic, from the unemployment system to vaccine rollout to COVID variant data to the governor's unfettered and unchecked spending and handing out of contracts um, and the surprise executive orders that come out of his office almost every week that lead us to scramble and call our city managers. How are we going to react to this? What are we going to do? And we don't fight preemption just to fight preemption. We do it because we're on the ground. We know our community and its needs best, as Josh mentioned. We do it because preemption is punitive and has long been wielded by the state to ensure that, honestly, white supremacy is entrenched in our laws and systems while disenfranchising people of color, women, and workers of the state. It's really astounding the lengths that the legislature is taking um, to attack the roles of local government this year when we stepped up during this pandemic while they stepped back. Um, we should be focusing on healthcare jobs, housing, sea level rise. Um, I know that's what my community cares about. Alicia Schaefer is an elected supervisor at the Broward County Soil and Water Conservation District. Yes, there really are such things. Her big concern is that lawmakers are about to pass a preemption law that would prevent local governments from dealing with climate change and rising sea levels. Around Florida, cities, municipalities, communities are taking this threat seriously. They're taking bold action and they're setting necessary goals to reduce emissions, use less power, and transition to clean energy sources, ultimately. But with the power grab of energy infrastructure bills that we're seeing in the legislature right now, uh, what we're seeing is something that is in direct conflict to both these goals that cities are attempting to set and quite frankly, the, the future of our state. It's not, it's not an isolated thing that we're seeing in Florida. This is a reflection of what is a disturbing national trend. It's a coordinated effort to undercut clean energy programs and prohibit local control over things like public health, economics, the environmental policy solutions that cities are attempting to put into place. And they're cutting all of that out in exchange for greater corporate profits. And sometimes we're, we're seeing it in exchange for things like campaign contributions. Uh, specifically, I want to mention uh, Senate Bill 1128 and House Bill 919. These are incredibly egregious uh, preemption bills on energy infrastructure. These bills will literally take away local government's rights to decide how our homes and our businesses are powered. This is an incredible overreach of government. Among other things, this legislation would prevent municipalities from moving away from what we have now, which is outdated gas-powered building codes. And this legislation would prevent those municipalities from moving towards clean energy building codes. This legislation would effectively make any city commitment to 100% clean energy, which we're seeing around the state, it would make those commitments completely impossible. One of those energy bills went before a House committee Tuesday. Representative Josie Tomcow of Polk City says her bill is more about choice than preemption. She just wants to keep the lights on. This bill specifically is making sure that we are protecting all energy sources so we do not experience a situation where we're having blackouts in our constituencies and across the state of Florida. We need a reliable energy source because we go through severe weather storms constantly. I mean, look at what happened in Texas. They did not have a reliable energy grid and people were experiencing blackouts left and right and were left without power. We are trying to protect our energy sources here in 
in the state of Florida and make sure that consumers are allowed to have the energy and resources that they so desperately need and want. The preemption bill passed easily, but supporters of the bill never really tried to explain who will make the decisions about renewable energy if local governments are stifled. The sad truth is that the Florida Public Service Commission is a toothless tiger, so it's the big power companies that will be making these decisions for us. And you trust them, right? There's a bill making its way through the Florida House of Representatives that would impose new limits on the state's medical marijuana program, including a 10% cap on the amount of THC in the flower version of marijuana. Representative Spencer Roach says anything more than 10% isn't really medicine, it's just for getting high. So let's check in with Ben Polar to see what the cap would do to the program. He's the guy who ran the campaign that led to passage of Florida's medical marijuana amendment. He also sued the state legislature after the amendment passed when lawmakers refused to allow patients to use smokable marijuana instead of extracts or tinctures. Ballara says this whole 10% cap is designed to tank the entire system. Well, I mean, it basically invalidates uh, the, the, the law that 71 plus percent of Floridians put into our state's constitution back in 20, 2016. I mean, we had, we had a low THC law uh, on the books since 2014. Um, and, and the voters decided overwhelmingly to, to, to open up uh, you know, to open up Florida to a broader, you know, higher THC marijuana in, in 2016. And now that what they're doing is just just like they were with the prohibition on smoke at the beginning. They're just trying to, to walk back the amendment. I mean, that's it. Is it walk back the amendment or just entirely get rid of medical marijuana? They're one and the same. I mean, I don't think they have a problem, you know, with, with you know, people not getting high and, and you know, using CBD. But if, if it's, you know, if it's a marijuana that gets people high in any way, shape or form, they don't like it. They never have. And, and they've continued uh, to try to, you know, invalidate, uh, you know, our votes by by first by prohibiting smoking. Um, and now this and, you know, they they lost on smoking uh, in, in no small part, thanks to the governor. I mean, it was the first bill that he signed. Uh, as governor of Florida, was was uh, overturning the prohibition on smoking and settling the lawsuit with with John Morgan and myself. So, you know, we'll we'll see. But you know, this is a you know this is a cure in in search of a disease, right? Uh, there there is no you know there there is no scientific you know evidence or research uh, that they have presented thus far that says. Uh, you know, it is it is uh, um, it is detrimental to have high THC cannabis. Uh, you know, all the all the research on patient satisfaction uh, says that that folks, for the most part, like cannabis a whole lot more than any of the other medications that they're taking. Uh, you know, amongst the 500,000 patients in Florida, nobody has been able to produce. Uh, you know, any sorts of reports of significant or even minor adverse effects amongst those half a million. Um, so, you know, they, uh, Spencer Roach said it at the hearing last week. He said this is a policy decision, and the, the decision is to try to cancel uh, to cancel the medical marijuana law. Now, he also argued that Florida's medical marijuana law has been turning the state into a recreational marijuana state. What do you make of that argument? I mean, again, what evidence does he have of that? I mean, it, it, it just it's it's simply made up. He doesn't, you know, we, we have about 2% of the population of the state um, who have uh, medical marijuana cards at this point, which is which is about what folks were predicting at the beginning of, uh, of 2017 when we were going about, you know, implementing this. Uh, it's what I was predict predicting in, you know, 2015 and 2016 when, when I was running the campaign. 2% um, is, is about where medical marijuana states get. 
uh, you know, as they become, you know, mature and, and, and access becomes more widely available and, and, you know, doctors, you know, start getting registered and everything like that, it's about 2%. So, uh, you know, I, I don't, again, I, I just don't know what this guy's talking about because he's just making stuff up. So when he says that medical marijuana works perfectly fine at 3 or 4% and that anything more than that is just recreational overkill? I, mean, I think there was, in the staff analysis, there's some older studies that say, you know, that, that, Marijuana. My recollection of is is essentially that these studies say marijuana doesn't begin working until three or four percent, right? Uh, that's that's the minimum amount of THC that you need, you know, to get uh, to get the, the true medicinal effect, and, and that was not the case with our uh, with our low THC high CBD law prior to to enacting the constitutional amendment that that limited THC to less than one percent. You know, and I think there's another study he's pointing to that said, you know, that that's, you know, uh, seven to nine percent was good. But, you know, what he doesn't say is in comparison to what? Right. I mean, he's got a couple studies saying that, that you know, concentrations less than THC, less than 10 percent THC can be useful. Um, but but, you know, where the like. <laughs> What, why does that equal a premise for for overturning, you know, what uh, what a half a million people are today finding useful? Now, I've noticed that the Senate has really stayed out of this so far. Do you get any mm -hmm. any word from your folks that they're willing to go along with this sort of thing? No, I mean, we've been mostly focusing on the House. I mean, you know, it was a pretty big signal uh, when when <laughs> Jeff Brandis got assigned, um, you know, got assigned uh, uh, the bill in the Senate in the first committee. You know, Jeff Brandis, you know, Democrat or Republican, Jeff Brandis is probably the number one uh, advocate for, for medical marijuana uh, currently in the legislature. So, uh, you know, he's never going to hear it, but that doesn't mean, I mean, you know, you know how this 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 town works. I mean, that doesn't mean something's not going to get sent over in the last week and, you know, go straight to rules on the floor, right? Exactly. I mean, who knows? Yeah. So what's your prediction by the end of the session, Ben? The only prediction I'm willing to offer is that I, this thing probably passes the House. And, and my, the, the other prediction that I'll give you is, uh, uh, is that if it, if it makes it through the House and the Senate, that the Governor DeSantis will veto it. Representative Roach's bill has been approved by two House committees. It's now in the Health and Human Services Committee. That panel meets this afternoon, but the medical marijuana bill is not on the agenda. Next up on Sunrise, your calendar of events and the story of another Florida man accused of trying to steal from the Paycheck Protection Program. But first, a word from the sponsor. In Florida, if you fall behind on court debt payments, the state takes away your driver's license. But if you can't drive, you can't work. So how can you make enough money to pay the debt? This policy makes no sense. Let's end debt-based license suspensions and help Florida get back to work. Welcome back to the Sunrise Calendar. At 8.30, the Senate Banking and Insurance Committee takes up a bill that limits the cost of insulin to 100 bucks per month for people with health insurance. The Senate Community Affairs Committee meets at 8.30. They'll take up a bill that overrides the citizens of Key West who voted to put limits on cruise ships to protect their waters. This bill would preempt local governments from regulating commerce in seaports. At 11.30, the Senate Governmental Oversight and Accountability Committee considers a resolution by Senator Chevron Jones of West Park that would condemn white nationalism and white supremacy. The Senate Health Policy Committee meets at 11.30 for a confirmation hearing for Simone Marsteller, who was recently appointed secretary at the Agency for Healthcare Administration. 
At three, Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed, Representative Jenna Person-Malika, and Representative Scott Plakin speak at a summit hosted by the Florida Commission on the Status of Women. At 4.30, the Senate Criminal and Civil Justice Appropriations Subcommittee addresses a series of issues in the court system, including allowing people to postpone jury service during a public health emergency or a state of emergency. And the Senate Education Appropriations Subcommittee meets at 4.30 to take up a bill that includes a program to deliver free books to elementary students who are struggling with reading. A Florida man has been indicted by a federal grand jury accused of trying to obtain more than $1.5 million by defrauding the federal Paycheck Protection Program. 46-year-old Jeremy Saintville, Delray Beach, is charged with bank fraud, making false statements to federally insured institutions, aggravated identity theft, and making false statements. The U.S. attorney also alleges that Saintville stole the identities of eight elderly individuals as part of his scheme. Seven of them were residents of senior living facilities. One was a relative. Finally today, a Florida woman who owns a million-dollar home in Palm Beach County is accused of shoplifting almost $1,000 worth of lighting from Home Depot. 44-year-old Karen Berger, of course she's a Karen, was caught on camera putting $756 worth of lighting fixtures in three moving boxes and then paying for the boxes at the self-checkout without scanning the merch inside. Her bail costs more than the lights she's accused of stealing. That's it for Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.